You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Father in heaven, we join with the angels around your throne because at this very moment, they are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Well, we're reminded of when Isaiah was in your presence. And he saw you high and lifted up. And his first response in that moment was, Oh, Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. Maybe that is the response that we need to have right now. Father, if there is anything in our hearts right now in this moment, I pray, Father, that we would seek your forgiveness now. If there's anything that needs to be purged from our life, just as Isaiah needed in that moment, I pray, Father, that we would name it right now. Maybe we're harboring unforgiveness. Maybe we've been looking at things throughout this week that are impure, have taken hold of our heart. Maybe this week we've had a heart filled with greed or lust. Maybe, Father, we've been playing a game for a long time. Maybe, Father, we have religion and no relationship with you. But, Father, we are a people of unclean lips. So, Father, cleanse us and make us whole. And then, Father, we're reminded of what Isaiah said next after you cleaned him up. You ask a question, who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. Well, we have an overwhelming task ahead of us as a church body, and that is to make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that you have commanded, and lo, you will be with us. Even to the end of the age, Father, that is far bigger than us. But Lord, we know the commitment to the Great Commission begins with, Lord, we are people of unclean lips. And then when you cleanse us and make us whole, the next obvious step, Lord, is to follow you in obedience, wherever that leads. So, Father, I pray that the meditations of our heart, the words of our mouth would be acceptable unto you today, that you would help us to rightly divide your word today as we take a look at this final church in these seven letters. And, Father, I believe that you have something to say to us today as individuals, 
and as part of the church body. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we're looking at the last of the seven letters, the church that Laodicea. But before we get into that text, I need to take you back to John chapter 6. If you don't mind, turn over to John chapter 6. I want to show you an interaction that Jesus had uh, with a crowd of people. As, as we look at John 6, we'll see that the crowds were getting larger and larger. And there was a particular miracle that Jesus did that really threw gas on the, on the crowds. In other words, Jesus did a miracle that when the crowd saw it, it's like the crowds got exponentially bigger at that point. It's in John 6, of course, the first part of John 6, we see that miracle, and that's where Jesus fed 5,000 people. It was actually more like 10 to 13,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves. Now, if you can, if you can transport yourself back to that time, you've, you've got to think about that miracle in, within the context of, of history. How did people get their food and meals? Well, they had to work and work really hard to do it. They they had to, to grow the, the, the weed and, and, and grind it into flour, and it was a large, long, laborious job to just simply prepare a meal. They had no Walmarts. They had no local stores. They did have a marketplace, but it was quite a bit to go buy this food, prepare this food. So a single meal, a single meal took a lot of time. So you can imagine the impact that Jesus had that day when he took just a few loaves and a few fishes and turned it into enough food to feed 10,000 plus people. And you can imagine that the people who saw it that day would have thought in their mind, my goodness, what an incredible blessing. We didn't have to work for this food. We didn't have to do anything for this food. And quite frankly, we've got more than enough to feed ourselves and we even have leftovers. Well, you, you can imagine well, some of the people were thinking, wow, if Jesus can do that today, maybe he could do it tomorrow, and maybe he could do it the next day. Hey, and then somebody says, hey, maybe this is just like what Moses experienced back in the wilderness, right? You remember uh, the wilderness wanderings? You remember what happened with the Israelites, right? They were out there in the wilderness. They didn't have anything neat. So when they would come out of their tent, what would they find? They would find manna. <laughs> they were being fed by the hand of God every day. So maybe God's doing something like that. Well, as you can imagine, the crowds got bigger and bigger. And I want you to look at John chapter 6, because I think this sets the stage for what we're going to look at in the church at Laodicea. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So after this miracle, what happens is Jesus, is, uh, the, Jesus and the disciples are just being overrun with the crowd. And it would be great to say that this crowd that is there, that have gathered, and they're following Jesus from town to town, that they're there because they love Jesus, they see him as Messiah, and they want to commit their life to him. But Jesus knows better. So in this moment, he looks at the crowd and he says to the crowd, I know why you're here. I know why you're really here. It's, it's because of the, the loaves and the fishes that I multiply. Now, in this moment, it would be really easy to be kind of condescending upon the crowd at that moment, right? But now remember, it's a big deal for them to cook and prepare meals. So it would have been not uncommon that if I'd have been in that moment, I might have been tempted by this to go, wow, I'm going to hang out with Jesus because he can take a few fishes and multiply it. He can, he can set aside the natural order. The natural order is, is that fish and bread don't multiply on their own. Jesus can set that aside and multiply fish and bread enough to feed thousands of people. So I'm going I'm to hang out and I'm going I'm to see what else Jesus can do, but especially it'd be great if 
Well, we could have more bread and fish. What Jesus has in front of him is a crowd of people where the majority of those people are following him for other reasons other than devotion and love and commitment to Messiah. So so Jesus is going to say something in chapter 6 that is incredibly, well, disturbing. But he does it for a specific purpose. Now I want you to look on down at verses 50 and 51. Let's just take a look at this real quick. So Jesus says to the crowd, he says, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And you know in the book of John, Jesus makes these statements, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection. Here he says, I am the bread of life. Well, that really prompts some questions, especially among the religious rulers. So look at verse 50. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Now, okay, so Jesus says that he possesses bread, that if you eat of it, you will never die? Well, now we went from just some loaves and fishes being multiplied to now talking about eternal life. And then Jesus says this. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, now, at this moment... In the crowd, especially among the religious rulers, they're really going to kind of step back for just a moment, and they're processing what Jesus just said. Jesus says he's the bread of life and can provide eternal life through that bread. Okay, so Jesus, you're bread, you've already said that, and, and you're saying that that bread will bring eternal life. But then Jesus says, if you eat of this bread, this bread that I will give, he will live forever, And he says, this bread is my flesh. Well, now we got a problem brewing. The Jewish people, the Pharisees, hear Jesus mention that eating his flesh will bring eternal life. Well, this is getting rather controversial. You can imagine that in the crowd there's conversations going on. And verse 52, of course, the Jews... Say they disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, you got to understand Jewish context you don't eat what? You don't eat blood. You, you, don't, you don't eat raw meat. You don't do that. That is, and especially humans. You know, I mean, we're talking about cannibalism here. The Pharisees are freaking out, as they, I would understand they would. Listen to what Jesus says next. So Jesus says to him, truly, truly, or get this, amen, amen. That's another way to say that. Or maybe your translation is verily, verily. I say to you, truthfully I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And a gasp falls collectively among the crowd. Well, we thought he was saying that, but now he's clearly saying you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part with me. You have no eternal life. So what is Jesus saying? And why is he saying it? I think that's even more important. Jesus is saying, unless you are consumed with me, unless your life is consumed with me, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, there is no way to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. He says, unless your life is surrendered and consumed with my life, you can have no eternal life. So it's not about works, it's not about keeping the law, it's about Messiah, and it is only about him. So why does Jesus say this? Well, he says this 
because he wants to separate those who are just there for the show and for the bread and fish and those who are truly committed to following him. Now, why would he do that? Because the crowds are huge. It's because Jesus knows that not everyone in the crowd is passionate about him. For many of them, they're just passionate about getting to see a show and getting some more free food. Well, if you read on, you find out that after Jesus says this and then says it again, a whole bunch of people walk away. They leave. So much so that Jesus looks at his 12 and he says to them, are you guys going to leave too? Are, are you, are you, are, at this point, are you going to bail on me? And Peter says, Lord, where else are we going to go? Who has the words of life? Go back to Revelation. So we pick up the church at Laodicea. In the church of Laodicea, we have, we, we're going to see some of the exact same issues that Jesus dealt with in John chapter 6, just a little bit different context. The church at Laodicea was known for its immense wealth. This was a very wealthy city, so much so the historians tell us that they also suffered under a great earthquake. We, we've seen earthquakes be kind of part of this region. Laodicea, this city was entirely destroyed by, by an earthquake. And instead of seeking help from the Romans to rebuild the city, they had enough money to rebuild their own city. Through archaeology, they have found plaques and things that were written about this city that Rome wanted to help, and the people of Laodicea said, no, we don't need your help. We've got our own money. We can handle it. And they rebuilt the entire city with their own money. Uh, this city was also known to have this particular breed of sheep, and, and this sheep, the wool that, it, that these sheep produced was a black wool, so these people would make clothing out of this wool that was very well-known and very expensive. They were also known for having eye doctors. And people would come from all over the place to partake in some eye salve to help, it was said, to heal your eyes and your vision problems. Laodicea was part of a, a three-city area that we learned probably had a church in each one of these cities. You had Hierapolis and Colossae, and Laodicea. It's almost laid out in a triangle, and they're all kind of in this same area, a little bit of a different context in each city. We know a lot about Colossae because Paul wrote a letter to that particular church we know to be the Colossians. In this particular area, there was something else that was very, very important to the historical background of what we're going to look at. So you had Heropolis and you had Colossae close by. And those two cities were also known for some pretty important things. Now, if you're going to build a city during this time, or even today, if you're going to build a city, one of the things you want to have close by and have a lot of is water, right? I mean, that's rather important. You need water. Well, Colossae, the city of Colossae was known for having an incredible source of fresh water that was ice cold. Colossae, the city was kind of tucked in against the mountains, and this water would run out of the mountains, and it would be fresh, and it would be ice cold, and Colossae was known for that. If you go over to Hierapolis, however, you find out in Hierapolis, they had something totally different. They had hot springs over in Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, people would go there to sit in these mineral baths, and they were steaming, I mean, scalding hot. And people would go there, and they thought that those waters with the minerals that were there would provide healing to your body. But the interesting thing about Laodicea is they had no water source. So they did something incredible. Now remember, they've got a lot of money. So what they did is 
they built an aqueduct or a series of pipelines that ran from Laodicea to Heropolis to get the water from Heropolis into the city. Heropolis was closer than Colossae. So the water that would flow into Laodicea flowed a very long distance, but that was the only water source they had. Now this is all very important when we consider what Jesus has to say to this church. This is one of those churches that when Jesus speaks to this church, he really has nothing good to say. He has no commendation for them. And he calls them to repent. Much like Sardis, Sardis had a a reputation of being alive, but they were actually dead. This church also has a reputation. And much like Sardis, there's not much good that Jesus has to say. What's going on in Laodicea? Well, a few key words. First of all, indifference. They just simply didn't care. We're going to find out why. We find out in this church that they were, well, apathetic. They, they, they really didn't care about what Christ had called them to. And there's a reason for that. We, we find out that that maybe, just maybe, they were following Jesus for some of the fringe benefits, but in their day-to-day life, Jesus really had no influence on their life. Now, Jesus is going to say something to this church that he says to no other group of people or individual anywhere in the New Testament. He's going to say something about this church that he did not say to the Pharisees, He did not say to the Sadducees. He did not say to Judas who betrayed him. He did not say to the disciples. He's got some words for this church that he utters nowhere else. And we need to pay close attention to what Jesus says about this church. So pick it up in verse 14. As we've seen with the other six letters, Jesus introduces himself to this church. Now remember, this letter would have been read out loud to the congregation. The congregation would have been gathered, and maybe they met in multiple locations. It was common to have house churches. Maybe this letter would have been read multiple times in multiple locations, or maybe in one location. So imagine in your mind's eye, the congregation is gathered. They've been told that Jesus has spoke to John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, and that Jesus, the resurrected king, the one seated at the right hand of the Father, has a message for the church at Laodicea. Well, you would imagine that every eye and every ear in the room is tuned in to the elder who's getting ready to read this in the church. So this is Jesus speaking to the church at Laodicea, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That phrase, the Amen, Well, first of all, that phrase is not used like that anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, the word amen, and you've heard me mention this before, that word is a very unique word. As a matter of fact, it's been said that the word amen is the truly, the only truly um, universal word. So, for example, if you go on a mission trip, Miss Carol's been on many mission trips. Some of you have been on many mission trips all over the place. You go there, and maybe you sit in a church in Honduras, or maybe you're sitting in a church in Zimbabwe, and, and the pastor's preaching in his language, and all of a sudden you'll hear somebody in the congregation go, congregation go amen. You go to a Spanish-speaking country, and you'll hear the congregation go amen. You go to China, and I've been in a church in China, and in that church I heard someone say the words amen. The pastor was speaking in Mandarin Chinese, but in the congregation... When they heard something they agree with, what did they say? Amen. 
The word amen is the same in the Hebrew language. It's translated right over into the Greek language, and guess what the word is? It's exactly the same, amen. When we go over into the Latin, what do we find? Same word, it's pronounced exactly the same way. We find that word all throughout different languages, and it's pronounced exactly the same way. So what is Jesus saying in this moment? He says that he is the amen. He is the faithful and true. He is the true witness. In other words, Jesus is the truth personified. In other words, when we say amen to something we hear, we're saying, let it be so. So when I hear an amen in here, you're saying, after something I say that connects with you, when you say amen, it says, you're saying, let this be true. Let it be so. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says he is the amen. Not only is it going to be true, and it's always going to be true in him, but he's going to fulfill it. He says, I am the amen. I will bring it about. I am the one who is trustworthy and a faithful witness. He says, I am the amen. He also says that he is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, if you've ever had an, um, an interaction with someone who is Jehovah Witness, maybe you get a knock on your door and there's somebody on your front porch and they're there to hand you a watchtower track and a pamphlet and you, maybe you engage in a conversation with them and, and maybe you understand that they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and they believe that, that Jesus is the first created thing that God ever did. And they will use this particular verse. There's only one big humongous problem with that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying he's the first thing that God created. He is saying that he is the ruler over all creation. That's different, isn't it? That Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is, and we've seen this through every one of the letters, that, that Jesus makes clear who he is, his identity. He is God with flesh on. Here he says, I am the ruler. If you, have, if you have an NIV, that's what your NIV says. If you look behind the word beginning in the Greek word, you'll find out that it also means he is the ruler. He is not subjugated to creation. He is over creation. Colossians chapter 1 says that all things were created, what? By him, through him. And what does he do? He holds all things together. That would be a good place for an amen. He is the king. Verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. This is where that historical background becomes very, very important to what Jesus is saying. So he says to this church, remember, they're gathered in a house somewhere, and he says to them, you're neither hot nor cold. And he says, would you that you were either hot or cold? You are lukewarm. Now, this would have immediately connected with that congregation because the water that is running through those aqueducts that are coming into their city, well, we have a problem with that water. It is neither fresh and cold like Colossae and clean. It is neither hot nor life-giving minerals that can provide healing to your body. By the time it gets to Laodicea, it is lukewarm. It is completely laden with all kinds of minerals that have collected. Not only the water at Heropolis has a lot of minerals in it, but as it has traveled through this aqueduct, the water has kind of balanced out in its, in its temperature. It's kind of tepid. Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold, just like your water. I wish that you were hot or cold. That text has always bothered me just a little bit as far as understanding what Jesus is saying. So I want to take a moment here and, and 
help us all kind of wrap our arms around this. So when Jesus says he wishes that they were hot or cold, what is he saying? Now we understand that, okay, Jesus is saying he wishes this church was not lukewarm. He wishes they were hot. We often think, well, we, Jesus is wishing that the church was just on fire, right? It was great commission focus and, and committed to their convictions and committed to Jesus. Well, if that's true, then what does he mean when Jesus says, I wish you were cold? Does he mean that, that instead of being apathetic somewhere here in the middle, I wish you were like, I don't know, rejecting me? Is that what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that if the opposite of hot is cold and the opposite of hot as we've defined it is on fire for God, then, then cold would mean, well, I would prefer you to be even more distant from me. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is simply saying, in their historical context, I wish, I would prefer that you were like a cold drink of water from Colossae. I would prefer that you would be refreshing in your ministry and what you're doing. I would prefer that you would be life-giving to people as a cold drink of water in the hot desert. That, I would prefer that you were that, or I would prefer that you were a hot mineral bath that can provide some healing. In other words, I wish you were useful on either end of the spectrum, but the fact is you're in this middle ground called lukewarmness. And you're neither helpful for a cold drink of water and you're not even helpful for physical healing, you're neither. He says, I would that you were either hot or cold or cold or hot. Now look at verse, eight, verse 16, he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And here is what Jesus says that he says nowhere else to no other group of people. And he says it to his church. He says that because they're neither a cold drink of water from Colossae or a hot mineral bath that can provide healing from Hierapolis, you are in the middle and you are satisfied in the middle. Jesus says that I would prefer that you be one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, you make me sick on my stomach. And in fact, the water in Laodicea had this but when people drunk it, they had a reaction. You know what that reaction is? You've, you've had that moment where you've been sick and you feel like you're Breakfast or lunch is coming up. You take a drink of water in Laodicea, and guess what happens almost immediately? It hits you like a ton of bricks. You want to almost immediately vomit. You ever had to do that? Okay. You ever had to do those preps for the doctor? I won't get into too many detail there. And the doctor, you go to the doctor's office, and he gives you this gallon jug of stuff you're supposed to drink for whatever test you're getting ready to have. Yeah, I've been there, and I'm looking at that jug, and I'm like, Lord, help me. How, what? What are we going to do? And the last one I had to do, it's been a while, it was like some kind of strawberry, like daiquiri. It didn't have any alcohol in it, but it was like strawberry daiquiri. I'm like, okay, that can't be too bad, right? Well, you pour it out, it's like thick. It's like molasses or something. I'm like, the doctor's like, I got to drink this whole gallon before I go to the doctor for this scan or test. And I, I put it in my mouth, and the, the first taste, the first drink, you get that kind of like dry heave, and you got a whole gallon staring at you. Welcome to Laodicea. You won't forget that illustration, will you? The next time you have to do your prayer, you're going to go, man, Laodicea, man. The water there was so bad that as soon as that water went down, it made you want to vomit. Jesus says to this church that because of their condition, he's sick on his stomach. 
Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who died and resurrected from the grave, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, looks at the church, he says, I know your works and I know where you are. I know your heart. I know what's going on. You are indifferent, which is translated as lukewarm. And Jesus says to that church, I can't imagine what this was like when it was read to the church. Jesus says he's vomiting, getting ready to vomit over what he thinks about the condition of that church. Jesus says that to no other person. I mean, we don't imagine that Jesus could say that to Judas, right? But he didn't. We can imagine that Jesus would say that to the Pharisees, the religious rulers, the one who had the law. Jesus doesn't say that. Now, he says a lot of other hard things to the Pharisees, but he doesn't say this. They're lukewarm. And he says, I, pre- I would prefer that you were refreshing or at least helping to heal, but you're neither. Why is this? How has this church become lukewarm? Well, let's read on. He says in verse 17, He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. So here's the problem. This church, and because of the city's wealth, the church was also very wealthy, very well-to-do, had all that they needed. So so when when this church considered who they were and, and what they needed, they looked at themselves and said, we're rich, what do we need? We've got it all. We've got power and influence. We have prosperity and money. We have a bank full of money. And, you know, in our context, to jump kind of in our, we have a big building and we got all the greatest aspects of ministry. I mean, people look up to us and they think about us as being so great and so mighty. We have a reputation of being all of this and more. And Jesus says to them, you believe you are rich. You believe you are prospering. You believe you need nothing. And then Jesus says this, you don't even realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Again, Jesus doesn't say anything like that to anyone else except this church. So look at the contrast. Jesus says, you believe you're rich, but when I see you and see you for who you really are, because remember the mask come off, he says, I know your works. When I see you, I see you as absolutely impoverished. That's what that word means. You are impoverished. You believe that you have the finest clothes because you get wool from these sheep that are found nowhere else in the region, and you make fine black clothes, and everyone looks up to you. You think you are well clothed, but I see you or who you really are, and you're naked. Jesus says, you believe that because you have eye doctors and eye salve and that you've got the envy of the other cities around you and they come to you for medicine, you believe that you can see clearly, but, but I know that you're blind. You're wretched. That word wretched goes back to the vomiting, wretch, right? The Greek word behind is the same thing. You are, well, a broken group of people. But the idea is, is they see themselves as everything is okay, so much so that we'll see in verse 20 that they are so self-reliant and so focused on themselves. Guess who's standing on the outside of the church knocking, wanting to come in? They are so self-reliant, they don't even need Jesus anymore. He's on the outside of the church that he died and shed his blood for. He is on the outside of his church knocking on the door, wishing that he could come in and dine with them. Is that not some incredible imagery? 
The church at Laodicea is lukewarm. Jesus says, it makes me want to vomit. They believe they were rich, needing nothing, yet they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And here's the thing you got to understand. Indifference, this is where this church is. They're indifferent. They're apathetic. They simply have arrived, and they don't think they need anything. And here's the thing you got to know. Indifference, apathy always leads to ignorance. Let me say that again. Indifference always leads to ignorance. In other words, this church, from Jesus' perspective, it's clear the condition of the church. But for themselves, they are self-deceived. People who become indifferent in their walk with Jesus always, always leads to a place of ignorance. Now, I don't mean that, I don't mean that to be derogatory. I don't, I, mean, I don't mean to call you as like you're not a smart person. You are. But here's the reality. When you get to a place where your walk with Jesus is no no longer alive, you get to this place where you don't even really need Jesus unless something goes wrong, unless the doctor says you've got something going on that that you need to be concerned about, not until the marriage is falling apart, not until the kids have walked away, then all of a sudden Jesus becomes important. But up to that point, not at all, you become very apathetic and indifferent. And here's the thing, when you get in that place of apathy, when you get in that place of indifference, ignorance comes with it and you have no ability to see the real true condition of your heart, the real true condition of your relationship with Jesus. That should scare us right there. That should, that should make us pause and it should make us ask some questions. Wait a minute, are you saying then that if I become apathetic in my walk with Jesus, that I can actually think that everything's okay when in fact everything is not okay. Yes, even to the point of lost people, people who've never put their faith in Jesus, people who have never, ever surrendered their life to Christ, yet they're part of the church. Got my name on the membership roll, have never experienced a transformed life. Their idea of following Jesus is showing up two or three times a month to a service like this. And on Monday morning, Jesus has no impact on their life. I I can tell you clearly that there have been people I've met down through 18 years of ministry who thought they were born again only to find out that they were lost as lost could be. Apathy leads to ignorance. For those of you who have experienced a life-changing new birth through Christ, it's not any different for you. You can become so apathetic, so much plugged into religiosity that you use that as your go-to rather than Jesus. I have everything that I need. I have everything that I need. Jesus, I will, I will open the door to you when I need something, but quite frankly, I don't need anything. I'm good. So let's read on. It says that, he says here that I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined with fire that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes that you, so that you may see. Jesus says, look, what you really need, you're not going to find in the aqueduct. What you really need, you're not going to find from the eye doctor. What you really need, you're not going to find from the sheep on the sides of your heels that you're shaving and turning into this great garments. And see, that's always the danger, right? When, we, when we're apathetic and then ignorance flows from that, we often run to everything else but Jesus. Jesus is knocking on the door. Hey, I've got what you need. I've always had what you need. But until we realize where we are, we will never be able to find the correct antidote, right? When we never really understand how broken our heart is, when we never really understand 
what it means to walk with Jesus when we never really understand what he did for us on that cross and in that empty tomb. If we never get to that place, we never really see our deepest need, and therefore we never really find the antidote. We never really find the, the, the cure. Jesus says, I'm the cure. It's not your eye doctor. It's not more clothes. It's not more wealth. Actually, church, you are far more needy than you thought. Let me ask you a question. The closer you get to Jesus, I just, I just want to hear an amen on this one, okay? I'm not trying to get amens, but I want, I want to see if I'm, if I'm heading the right direction here. In my walk with Jesus, the closer that I get to Jesus, the more that I learn about Jesus, the more that I, 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 I surrender daily to Jesus, the more I realize how far from Jesus I am. Okay, so I'm not crazy. Okay. The closer I get to him, the more I realize how messed up I am. The more I read about him, the more I study his life, the more I realize, man, Lord, I'm so glad your grace is sufficient for me. Because if it were not for his grace, man, I would be a person most miserable. That's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. The closer you get to him, the more convicted you are. The closer you get to him, the difference you see between you and him. But then there's a whole other segment of the church who says this, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. Me and Jesus, we're tired, we're okay. Boy, I want you to know that sends up red flags in my mind. Because <laughs> me and Jesus, well, there's a whole lot in my life that's still broken that he's still mending. There's a whole segment of the church, the Western church, who says, oh, no, me and Jesus, we're BFFs. If he's truly your BFF, you're going to find out just how brokenhearted you really are, or you're living in ignorance and apathy. Jesus is on the outside of his church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and, die, and he with me. Jesus says, I want, to, I, want to, I want to do life with you, church. And I have what you need. I have gold. I have, I have healing. I have I have clarity, I have truth. You're not gonna find it in the world. You're not gonna find it from your eye doctors. I have what you need. But as long as you are indifferent, which then leads to ignorance, you're never gonna see me as the solution to the problems in your life. And so it is with you. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? One of the greatest struggles in ministry for myself and, and other pastors that I'm friends with, because we've talked about this, is why is it the people who say they love Jesus and have been changed by him have so little interest in growing in him. You got to understand, church, my desire for you has always been for you to meet Jesus, surrender your life to him, and then grow up in him. That, that, that's why I'm here. I'm here to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, and let's do it together. The great commission work that Jesus has given us. So there's this nagging issue that I have, and that nagging issue is there are people who say, that I've, I've been changed by Jesus, I love Jesus, he changed my life, but only to see that their life really hasn't changed that much. And they have no interest in growing in him, they have no interest in, in serving him, they have no interest in talking about him. And folks, that, that, is, that, is, a, that is something that, that nags at me in the middle of the night, right? So i got a few things to consider here that you might be lukewarm. 
So I've got a little self-examination that you can do between you and the Lord. And it goes something like this. You might be lukewarm if. And this all connects right back to this church at Laodicea. So the first one. You might be lukewarm warm, if you pick what is popular over what is right. You see, the problem with indifference that then leads to ignorance is it becomes awfully easy just to acquiesce to the culture because at the end of the day, the person who is pursuing, well, indifference and apathy, the reason they're doing it is because they want a life that is easy and comfortable. If you go back, if you go back to Jesus at John 6, why, why was that crowd there? Why, why were they there? And why did Jesus have to throw out these hard teachings? They wanted bread and fish. How often are you picking what is popular over what is right? This goes to your social media. How often are you going with the flow versus standing upon what is true and right and real? Well, if, if your life is a mirror image of our culture, then that is by definition apathy, indifference, not caring what Jesus has to say about your walk with him. And by definition... Well, you're picking what is popular over what is right. Listen, I'm not saying that picking what is right is easy, but it is right. And Jesus calls you out from the world. You know what the word church means? It means, it's this Greek word, ekklesia. It's a, it's a group of people who gather together who have something in common. You know what it is? They've been called out from the world. Ekklesia means called out ones. Well, you can't be ekklesia if you're still walking in the world in indifference and apathy towards Jesus. It's the very opposite of what a church is. So are you picking what is popular versus what is right? Second, it just fits in with the first one. You might be lukewarm if you hide your faith to fit in with others. Teenagers, let me talk to you. College students, let me speak to you a minute. Let me tell you, the college campus, the high school campus is one of the hardest places in our country right now to live out your faith. I get that. I've got, I've got a 20-year-old, East Carolina. I talk to her almost every day, and I hear every day, even talk, last night, this morning, texting with her about things she's seeing on campus. And I, and I understand how hard it is. And, and quite frankly, teenagers, let me say this to you. It would be very difficult for me to, to return back to my teen years and live in the culture in which you live. I, I don't know how you do it. With the social media and, and, the, and the absolute picking, I, I lost the word I was trying to say, but just the, the anger that's within our community now and how that people would just absolutely run you in the ground if you're different, different in any way. So I understand how hard it is to be a follower of Jesus. But the hardness of being a follower of Jesus on oh, that school campus, doesn't allow you to simply ignore the king who gave you life. You can't simply have it both ways. And you need to understand that following Jesus, you were never promised that it was all going to be easy. You never got that promise. Jesus said, I'll be with you. Jesus said, I'll empower you. Jesus said, I'll give you the words to say in those moments when it's hard. But he never said to you, if you'll just follow me, then you don't have to worry about causing any problems in your school, your college, or those professors you're going to have in college that are anti-Christian faith? Oh, yeah, they're there. 
What are you going to do in those moments? Adults, maybe for us to help these young people out, maybe what we need to be doing is also living out a bold faith so that they can see what that looks like. But you are, by definition, lukewarm if you are hiding your faith to simply fit in. Third, you might be lukewarm if you're twisting Scripture to fit your own lifestyle or culture. So you're sitting before God's Word, or you're hearing a sermon or a podcast, and you hear somebody say that God's Word says this. And in that moment, you have that, that thing rise up inside of you because it hits a little home, it hits a little close, and you have this thing rise up inside of you and say, oh, well, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. That, that applies to the guy sitting at church. I've seen him. It's got to apply to him, but it doesn't apply to me. Maybe you're saying that this morning. Maybe you're saying that all of this applies to, well, this group's pointing over here, and, and y'all are pointing over there, right? Not literally, but you understand what I'm saying. Or simply you read a Bible verse, and it says something about marriage, one man, one woman for life. Or you read a verse that says, God created them male and female, male and female, he created them. But you have a culture that's telling you something different, don't you? So in that moment, you have a choice to make. Am I going to try to discount this and fit it into something the culture's telling me, or am I going to believe what it says and live as a result of that truth? Number four, you might be lukewarm if you feel good about yourself by looking down to others. You feel good about yourself by looking down at others. You know one of the things the churches get accused of often, and unfortunately it's true? The guest, uh, someone new comes into the church and, and they don't feel any kind of love, any kind of connection, any kind of welcome. They, they feel like it's just a very cold and indifferent environment. I had a conversation just this week with a guy who visited the church and uh, this particular guy works in a particular industry that uh, this church believed is a sin, and they knew he worked in that particular field, and I uh, just heard this story from another person, and they looked at him and told him to hit the door. Somebody who's seeking to know who Jesus is, and he's told to hit the door. The closer you are to Jesus, the more you see your own failure. So the whole idea is, is that if you feel good about yourself by looking down at others, what's happening is, is you're living in that place of apathy, which is then leading to ignorance, which then helps you to kind of categorize everybody. Well, I'm, I'm more spiritual than him. I, I, I am closer to Jesus than that person. The very moment you begin to make those statements in your head is the very moment you are moving towards lukewarmness because there is only one that we are called to look at. Who is that? Jesus Christ the righteous. You look at his life and then look at your own and see where you're following. I'll tell you where I fall. Well, in the negative side of that equation every time. You feel good about yourself by looking down at others. Fifth, you only love those who love you back. You know, the whole idea of love is that love is not a feeling, it's a choice. So for those who are moving towards lukewarmness, they only love those who can give them something back. So for a church, it would be like, well, we're going to reach our community because we need more money in our account. <laughs> we're going to reach more people because, not because Jesus says we're to love people, but because they need to give us something. We need something from them. So we're going to tell you about Jesus, but we'll only do it as long as you will return that back in some kind of favor, some kind of action, some kind of deed. I'll love you as long as you love me back, but if you don't love me back, well, I'm cutting you out. 
I'll love you as long as you do what I say. I'll love you as long as you act the way I tell you that. I'll love you as long as you fall in line. I'll love you as long as you get your life cleaned up before you come in our church. I'll love you as long as you fix all the problems before you come here. You get where I'm going with this. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't treat you that way? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say to you, hey, if you'll fix all these things, come back and we can, we can talk about it. Number six, you seek to do the bare minimum concerning your faith. The bare minimum. The bare minimum. I'm just, I'm just going to check the box. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe show up at Easter and Christmas, Mother's Day and Father's Day, and maybe a few other times. I'm just going to do the bare minimum. And, and I'm going to trust in that for salvation rather than a king who didn't do the bare minimum, by the way, who gave his very best. Number seven, you always play it safe in your faith. Fear paralyzes you. Every time I talk about praying, go, fear paralyzes you. About coming out on a Sunday afternoon and simply going out and praying for folks in our community, it paralyzes you. So fear has been ruling your life, your entire life. Fear has ruled your walk with Jesus. You're afraid to talk about Jesus because of what somebody might think. You're afraid to bring up the fact that you are follower, a follower of his. You're afraid of all of that, and fear has paralyzed you. So lukewarmness, by its very definition, is playing it safe. You know, when we look at Jesus, we look at the New Testament church all down through history. What do we find? We find anything but people playing it safe. I've shared with you missionaries over the last few weeks about them being called to go and not allowing fear to paralyze them. The very definition of lukewarmness is being paralyzed in fear. Number eight, we're almost done. You love God with conditions. So not only do you love people with conditions, but you love God with conditions. So lukewarmness is the idea that, again, apathy leading to ignorance, I really don't know this God that I claim to know. So here's what I'll do. I'll go and I'll pray to him because I've got myself in trouble. My marriage is in trouble. My job's in trouble. My health's in trouble. And I'll go and here's the kind of prayer that flows from a person who is lukewarm. God, if you will do this, then I will be faithful. You've never prayed a prayer like that, have you? I have. God, if you'll pull me out of this mess, then I'm going to be on fire for you and I'm going to tell people about you and I'm going to do what you've called me to do. If you will do this, I will give you a condition, God, if you'll show up. And you know what? In God's grace, there's been times he's answered that prayer request in spite of that, that you're putting conditions on God, that you'll love him as long as he does some things for you, like a, like a big old uh, slot machine in heaven. I'm going to pull the lever and hope I win something. Lukewarmness is loving God with some conditions attached. If you'll do this, if you'll do that. We, we just sung a little while ago about holy, holy, holy. The very attributes of who God is demands your worship, not to get something from him, but because of who he is. And then finally, you expect forgiveness from God, but refuse to give it to others. I mean, I can, I can, this list could be 20 points long. I'm gonna stop there. You seek forgiveness from God and expect forgiveness from God. You expect forgiveness from those around you. But then when it comes time for you to forgive someone, no. I'll, here it is. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is the phrase. Well, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget that. Well, you know what that means, right? That they're not actually forgiving you. They're going to withhold the right to bring that up at a later time and hold it over your head. That's not forgiveness, folks. No matter how you want to define it, that's not forgiveness. So the idea of lukewarmness is, is that 
I expect you to forgive often and quickly, but don't ask me to forgive you. There was a, a pastor, a Baptist pastor, by the name of Wilbur Rees, who wrote poetry in 19, wrote a book of poetry in 1971. And this is the first poem in that book. I don't want you to hear it. This is in 1971. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Folks, that is the very definition of indifference. That is the very definition of lukewarm, said in poetic form. So now is the time for you to take a look inward. Now is the time for you to consider where you really are in your relationship with Christ. Because Jesus says to this church, he says, I would rather have you hot. I would rather have you cold. But this place of lukewarmness makes me want to vomit. We need to consider, could Jesus be saying that to us today? Could he be saying it to us as individuals? And if he is, it's in this next moment during this last song that we need to listen clearly to what Jesus is saying to each one of us individually. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these seven letters. In the weeks ahead, Father, we're going to move into your throne room. Next week, we're going to enter into the throne room with John. But today, Father, right now in this moment, I wonder, Lord, if you're not saying to some of us the same thing that you said to this church. If a letter from you came to us today, would it be very similar to this letter? Father, we have to consider that maybe, maybe that through our apathy and our indifference, we are now becoming ignorant to the very condition that you're trying to point out in our life. And Father, just maybe in that place of ignorance, you are saying to us, knocking on the door from the outside, saying, I have all that you need. Why would you look anywhere else? So Father, knock on the hearts of the doors of the people in this room right now in this moment. Can we be real with you? Can we be honest with you? Can we be open with you? Can we take the mask off because you already know what lies there? Father, have your will in your way in this moment. We ask it in your name and in your power and welcome the Holy Spirit to move as only he can and there will be freedom, freedom in this room to respond appropriately to what you're calling us to do. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.